Hello and welcome to episode six of Ben and Luke's Excellent Adventures, the the podcast where my good friend Luke here makes me watch a movie that I've never seen, and then we talk about it. So, Luke, what uh, what movie did you make me watch this time? This episode, we're going to be discussing the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, 1969 film, classic Western, absolutely wonderful in every way, and Ben better agree. Okay, so the, this movie is the movie that I wrote the most things down about of any movie that we've watched so far. That's intriguing. <laughs> um, so overall, I I did like it. Yes, six for six. Yeah, six for six. I'm just every time I every time I go to watch a movie now, I'm just waiting. I, I know this the streak cannot hold. Eventually, there's going to be a movie I don't like. Don't worry, Krull is on the list somewhere. It'll come up eventually. Though you might actually like that one. <laughs> So, so yeah, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, th- this is a film where every every time I watch it, I just get fall in love with the first you know thirty minutes of it or so, and it just sucks me right in. I, that first half is just so amazing. It's just one of those films that does a really good job of setting up who the characters are, why we should care about them, how much fun they have together. It's it, you just want to explore this world with them, you know. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I enjoyed that part of the movie too. The the title, like the introduction title card uh, parts, where it was just a like a jumble of you know images and all sepia tone, like a sepia tone version of the Godfather newspaper scene. I just I, I the, like while I was watching that, I was trying to figure out how much how much am I ex- actually supposed to glean from this, or is this just ambiance? The silent movie style footage at the beginning? Yeah. I have some thoughts, but I'll wait until we start talking about theme a little bit more, because it has to do with that. But I mean, the whole start of the film is all in that sort of bronze sepia tones, you know, featuring Butch at the Bank and Sundance at the Card Game, you know, introducing those characters in this very, very old school way. Mm hmm. That's, uh, one of the first things I wrote was, is this whole movie going to be in sepia? Because I thought it was just going to be that, uh, that silent movie section of it. And then uh, suddenly the actual movie started and it was still doing it. So why do you think they did that then? Oh, probably to represent the good old days or something like that. Back before life got complicated. I think that's, that's on a similar vein to what I think. I guess it's it's actually kind of a larger question of what do you think this whole film was trying to say? You know, what what do you think this film was about? We're going to jump into that theme conversation early here this time. <laughs> um, I think that it was about these two guys who could not adjust to changing times. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this. I, I think ultimately this whole film is about endings and change and the passage of time. And, I mean, you look at the time period that this happened in. I don't know if you did, if you know anything about the, the story of the actual historical Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, but 
the the two of them died in 1908. So I mean, this is long after the age of the classic Western as we think of it. You know, mm-hmm. I thought I had read something or noticed something about it being set in the 1890s. Yeah, it starts off in the late 1890s, and then they move. They went to Bolivia in 1900, and spent eight years in Bolivia before they were killed. I did not catch how long they had spent in Bolivia then. I thought that they were there for a much shorter time. Yeah, the film compresses that pretty heavily. It makes it feel like more a few weeks, few months, maybe. Yeah, that's. It seemed like oh, we, they robbed a couple of robbed a couple of banks and, um, you know, hit some uh, miners carrying gold or whatever, and or their money back and for for their payroll or whatever, and then suddenly the army goes after them. Yeah, Bolivia definitely took that shit more seriously than America did. Although, you know, it didn't seem like they didn't put a whole lot of the history of their like criminal exploits into the movie. So that also at the beginning felt like, you know, they kind of said there are these, here are Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and they are two infamous robbers. And then we see like two or three train heists, and then they have this inevitable gang of super trackers following them across the countryside. And there's something I love about that too, in the sense that, you know, they, like we said, they go to Bolivia, they rob a few banks, the entire Bolivian army goes after them to murder them. Whereas in America, they rob trains, they kill, you know, they, they potentially kill people. They never actually kill anybody on screen, but you know, they threaten people. They try to blow up poor old Woodcock twice. And, uh, and yet the American army does nothing. And they send, you know, it's some private company that ends up sending a bunch of mooks after them, you know? <laughs> That's just so American. Yeah, it even, it even like, the way they described the various people that were in the group that were chasing them or, you know, tracking them down, it was, it was, it sounded like a, like a comic book superhero squad. Yeah, and the funny part is that some of those guys are actually historical figures that really did track them down. <laughs> Like the LaFour's character that they talk about, which, by the way, I don't know if you caught this, but Mallrats totally has a character that's a reference to that guy. It's been a while since I saw Mallrats. Yeah, I only mention it because I know that's one of the few movies you've seen without my influence, but uh, but the security guard in that is totally a reference to this movie. But um, but he was LaFour's was a historical character that was an actual uh, mer- you know, member of the Pinkerton gang that tracked them down. But there's just something so unique, so uh, American about the fact that some private company sent a bunch of mercenaries after them. And the army didn't do anything, <laughs> and then they go down to Bolivia, and the army goes after them there. But yeah, with I mean, I think you're right on though. The theme of this film is that the world is leaving these two guys behind. Did you pick up any other moments of that uh, coming out at you, or? I don't. I mean, they always seem to be. Um, like as good as they were at what they did, you know, anything that was changing or anything that was kind of different, they seem to always be a step behind. Uh, like even like whenever they try to go straight, they always did it like one heist too late or something like that, so that you know people they didn't have the really the opportunity to pull it off, or you know that other people that were doing what they were doing would ruin it for them, or it something would happen every time. I guess all two times, but. 
Yeah, it's like every time they try to get out, it you know something would just end up bringing them back in and crash. You know, everything would just crash down around them. Like they try to go straight with protecting the payroll, and some other gang screws it up for them, and they have to kill those guys, and it's just a mess. I had uh, wondered why they couldn't have just turned in the bounty for the other gang since they killed all the gang members. Yeah, they probably would have had to wear fake beards or something if they went into a law office where their poster is totally going to be hanging up right next to the guys, though. <laughs> you know, Butch, uh, Butch could grow a mustache and Sundance could shave his, I guess. <laughs> the other thing that I really enjoyed about the movie was how much uh, witty dialogue there was, How many, you know, how many fun exchanges there were. Do you know who the uh, screenwriter was, actually? Do not. I didn't pay attention to any of the credits. William Goldman. Do you know anything about what else he's done? Because you know at least one. Nope. It is actually the same screenwriter as The Princess Bride. Oh, that's cool. So the witty dialogue just kind of makes sense now, doesn't it? <laughs> yep. Yeah, um, as soon as the uh, that initial... Uh, you know, fight in the saloon over a card game or whatever. Um, he walks out of the door and the movie switches to glorious Technicolor. And then, then the next thing he does is goes to is to go and check out a bank and walks in. It's like, what happened to the old bank? People kept robbing it. Small price to play to pay for beauty. Yeah, and then following right that right into that scene with the uh, hole in the wall gang, where you know Harvey Logan tries to challenge Butch Cassidy for leadership. I mean, just that whole sequence is just amazing. <laughs> and that uh, is one of the two people I recognized in this movie. Really, three three people because I saw I recognize uh, Newman from uh, my jar of spaghetti sauce. You recognized what? Oh, oh, Paul Newman. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't hear you there. So what did you recognize Harvey from? Uh, wasn't he Lurch or something? He was Lurch. He was also actually... Uh, In Star Trek. Yeah. I was wondering if he'd catch that. He was the big android. The uh, the sheriff that, they, that makes them tie him up was also in Star Trek. Oh, really? He was in the, the Cloudminders episode. Oh, okay. I know which one. But yeah, Ted Cassidy, the guy who played Harvey Logan, is actually a pretty interesting cat. He uh, he was six foot nine, and uh, actually skipped multiple grades. So it's like kind of ironic. He, he the guy was incredibly smart. Um, ended up going into high school at age eleven, and he was already six foot one. So he ends up skipping multiple grades, and yet he's still just as big as a high schooler, if not bigger than most. <laughs> Um, so I haven't, hadn't, you know, haven't really seen a whole lot of westerns apart from this one, but the like the train heist scenes seemed very like I've seen people do some like I've seen people do that set of sort of thing in TV and movies afterwards, and I wonder um, if that is based on something this movie did originally, or if the movie if this is just a like that scene or that whole the whole train heist thing is something that was coming from earlier movies in this. It is probably a combination of the two. I mean, some of the, you know, this, this film's dialogue and this film's setup is very iconic. And so a lot of film, a lot of stuff does lift from it. Um, 
I'm sure that there's a million Simpsons episodes that do, for example. But um, but the the whole idea of train heists in film goes back to the very original um, narrative film, which was The Great Train Robbery. Hmm. So that was the first film that actually tried to tell a story in a lot of ways. But that, what about that one about going to the moon? That was after. Oh, really? Huh. Mm-hmm. And the the funny thing about watching Great Train Robbery now is that it breaks almost every single rule of narrative film that you could possibly think of. Like it's it's technically speaking, it is a horrible film. Everything it does, it does wrong. But it's it's the first, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, that was uh, that was quite a night fight. <laughs> Yeah, I love that he kind of does some Captain Kirk fighting with just throwing himself into the guy. <laughs> that was like one of the things I noticed about the movie that I didn't I didn't really notice it until the uh, the bicycle musical montage was how seventies this movie was, even though it was from like nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, I love that Burt Backrack music going over the bicycle scene. That's just hilariously uh, hilariously anachronistic. Uh, but yeah, and speaking of the bicycle. Uh, the the uh, scene where the the local sheriff is trying to raise up a posse to go after them, and then the bike salesman just like usurps his his platform and all the people he's gathered to try to sell bikes. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty much just one of my most favorite moments too. Just the idea of this guy taking advantage of, it. and all the townspeople are just like, "Oh, we're going to completely lose interest in your posse because bicycles, man." They're the way of the future. Which actually takes me into another little point about the theme of this film. You know, things like the bicycle, the steam train, all these things that, you know, are changing and coming along and pushing them out. One of the big moments of this film, I think, is when he throws the bicycle into the yeah, away as they're leaving and goes, future's all yours, you lousy bicycles. <laughs> Although he had a lot of he had a lot of bicycle tricks down for someone who just bought a bicycle. Well, you know that's Butch. He's always thinking. That's what he does. <laughs> the and then right before the the bicycle music montage is the um the scene scene with the Sundance Kid and the school teacher, which at first I thought this is really really this is really heavy for this movie, and then it's like oh oh they it's just you know a bunch of kinky role play. And then I thought this is kind of this is kind of risque for this movie, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's the '70s almost. <laughs> yeah, this film definitely ushers in some of the '70s uh, '70s ideals, I would say. But you know, it's it is kind of a creepy scene, but I think it's effective in showing that these are very different characters than the prototypical John Wayne hero cowboys. Mm. You know, I mean these. These are not Shane. They're not Wyatt Earp. You know, they're not glorified Westerners. They're crooks, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, they're incredibly charming and goofy and fun, but I think having that kind of creepy edge to them does serve in showing that this is a very different type of film than the Westerns that a lot of people were used to. Mm-hmm. And it's not like there weren't more gray-toned westerns in the past. I mean, this is post-Eastwood, but still, 
it was effective in, in kind of grounding the film instead of letting it just get taken away by the incredibly witty script. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I liked in the, the bicycle musical montage was there were a lot of, um, there was this part of that where there's, I, there's visually was, I, I liked a lot when they were riding past like a bunch of trees or fence posts or something. And it was almost like the, the light and dark was going in time with the, the beat of the music. And it was just a, really like that part of the, that scene. Yeah. The cinematography in this film is amazing. And that's, I mean, it received high acclaim for that as well. Um, I mean, this is an Academy Award winning picture. And, you know, you see shots like them trying to hide from the posse in the brothel, you know, when they're watching out the window and the woman's talking to them in the background and they see the old man point right up towards them silently. And, you know, he's so, you know, accusing them so dramatically. And all you hear in the background is this woman droning on as the two of them ignore her. There's just so many great little moments like that with the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are. Um, and I think that this is this is the part of the movie uh, where I was still trying to figure out what kind of movie this was uh, because it wasn't, you know, the stereotypical Western that I've seen one or two of with my dad. And, uh, you know, and it's not solely about train heists anymore so i'm not you know it wasn't just about these guys it wasn't the godfather in the wild west you know i was trying to figure out what the what was going on with the movie still and then the very next train heist is the one where woodcock shows up and it's just like is this is this a comedy (laughs) the woodcock scenes definitely are those are hilarious oh my god though his boss would not go that far for his ass i mean jesus (laughs) Frickin' bourgeois. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, they told him that too, but he wouldn't wouldn't get out of the train. Yeah, I just love the moment where they're just like, you know, whatever your boss is paying you, it's not enough. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't just have a decoy safe in there. I mean, come on. Well, apparently Butch is just going to blow up the money anyway, so... That's what I said too. Just put a decoy safe with a bunch of locks welded onto it, and put the real money in a you know a fake or another safe that's like under the train or something. I don't know. These guys are too set in their ways to check anywhere else. And which goes back to their downfall. It's interesting that you keep mentioning the Godfather with this one, though, because I I had never thought about this, but there is a somewhat similar. Uh, a path in this in this particular plot where you know the film starts off you know showing the day-to-day business that these guys are up to and and showing their day-to-day lives and then all of a sudden some sort of horrible event happens to them you know in the godfather it's don corleone getting almost assassinated and in this one it's the the trackers coming on them and interrupting their train robbery and them having to run and flee the country and from that point on, the film changes tone completely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what they get. Uh, they get two two cracks at uh, Woodcock, and then you know the almost superhuman tracking team is right there. And it seems like the way they respond, this is the first serious attempt to stop them, or you know, to take them out. Yeah, I mean, it, it really shows that, 
you know, we've been seeing them as these very competent robbers and, you know, they're always talking up how smart Butch is and, you know, Sundance is always complimenting him on his thinking and his brains. And then this happens and it just completely tears away the whole facade. And they're just completely big fish in a small pond. Yeah, and then, uh, of course, while they're getting uh, chased and tracked all over, every, you know, the wilderness, they still manage to pop out some, some good one-liners or some good witty exchanges. Yeah, the one I assume that you've heard in the past is the, you know, I can't swim. Hell, the fall will probably kill you. <laughs> Which I think has been quoted in 99% of other media. I couldn't do that. Could you do that? How can they do that? <laughs> I also just love how they're it's almost like they're trying to one up each other on who can identify these, you know, superhuman trackers from reputation alone. Like, oh, that guy's got to be Lord Baltimore. Oh yeah, well that guy's got to be LaFours. I think I've heard of this this one Indian tracker. And almost feels like they're feeding into their own egos by just going, "Oh man, we're so important that we've got everybody after us." But then past that point, you know, once they once they flee to Bolivia, all of a sudden the facade is gone and Sundance never says, oh, you're always thinking, oh, you're so smart, Butch, never says it again. Mm-hmm. Instead, it becomes moments like, I got nervous and forgot the words, shoot me. Well, you've had worse ideas lately. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, scene where they get off the train in Bolivia and it's just uh, broken down brick stone building and Sundance is just kind of he's not even saying anything yet he's just kind of walking around looking at stuff kicking the dirt yeah I mean that's that's one of the things I love the most about films like this is where the dialogue you know the, the silence is almost another part of the dialogue you know a really good film like this can say so much with just a character glowering at another one but it's that scene is just so effective at showing how far they've fallen, you know? And yet it's set up by the sheriff that they talk to before they decide to flee when they're trying to get to join the army, who's sitting there flat out telling them, you guys are nothing but two-bit crooks. You're a big deal around here because nobody's here. But now <laughs> civilization's coming, so you're small fries now. Yeah, that's uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Corey. Is that that guy's name? Yeah. I didn't really, like, he was in a lot of stuff, actually. Not, you know, I've seen a few of these things, but. That was, you know, the, the Lurch car- Lurch guy and him, I both recognized. And I didn't realize how prolific they were. Like the, you know, they must have been really pro- prolific in order for me to have seen anything else with them in it, I guess. Uh, and during that, the chase scene. Where they're, you know, they continue to be chased, continue to be, you know, to be tracked all over the place. Um, I started wondering if they were even going to make it to Bolivia. And it was just, you know, like, I think the the Netflix description had said something about them going to Bolivia. And I wondered if that was even, like, that was one of those just incorrect summaries. And they just were never going to make it. They were just going to get hunted down in the middle of um, Wyoming or wherever they were. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that they actually get to Bolivia and have that whole second adventure is actually kind of an interesting story in and of itself in that um, 
one of the quotes I found from William Goldman about the about the process of making the script is that he talks about how there's no second acts in America, but Butch and Butch and Sundance did get a second act. You know, they were more successful and more legendary in Bolivia than they ever really were in America, and they got eight years out of that escape. I mean, it was this whole other career for them essentially, where they got to have that second chance. Mm-hmm. It still ended horribly for them, but. Uh, yeah, the and the scene you mentioned uh, where he throws the bicycle and says, you know, the future's all yours, you lousy bicycles. So that was another one of the, just one of the scenes that, you know, looked really nice to me uh, where the bicycle wheel's just spinning in the in this creek. I know. I, yeah, I love that moment. Um, and then following it up right, off, right after that with the old, you know, sepia-toned photograph styling of the travels. <laughs> and it's that whole se- that sequence. I mean, it almost goes on too long, but yeah. the way that they're able to convey the story of that travel, you know, they it adds a lot to the relationship between the three of them, and really brings them a little bit closer. Um, you know, especially the bromance between Butch and Sundance. <laughs> yeah, and it w- it went on long enough that I wonder if they actually cut a lot of stuff for time because it seemed like some of the, like the photographs or the, you know, were close enough together that they actually must have filmed them doing these things or had set up a whole scene um, for them to take a bunch of pictures of. Yeah. It'd be interesting to find out how, just how much cut footage there was. Roger Ebert. I mean, one of the things he accused this film of was that they didn't want to cut footage he felt that the whole chase sequence with the trackers going after them after the failed train heist, he felt that that was just way too long. And, he, you know, that they, oh, they went on location in Mexico and got all this beautiful footage and they just didn't want to cut any of it. And that scene just goes too long. But I kind of agree with you on that. I almost wonder how much cut footage there really was. Actually, I like the how long the tracking scene went on because it kind of it just, you know, nailed down how inevitable their, you know, or how inescapable their, their inescapable their situation was. Yeah. And it all, and like you said, I mean, it was very effective in making you feel like they're never going to get to Bolivia. They're just going to die here. I even thought where they, like they were walking across, you know, going through the solid rock area and he gets into um, like a pool of water there. I thought he was just trying to, like, I wonder if he was starting to thinking, like, are they tracking us by smell or something? Or just going to try to well, take a bath or something? But <laughs> they can still track them across solid rock, so. Somehow, because they're, you know, superheroes, apparently. But yeah, once they once they get to Bolivia, um, they, there are still, you know, even though they stop talking about how smart, some you know, the guy is. There's still, you know, funny lines like, "Oh, he'll feel better. He'll feel a lot better after he robs a few a few banks." Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of fun how you can see their relationship does get strained, but the two of them still get along so well, and there's still so much chemistry between Paul Newman and Robert Redford. <laughs> I like the, or I like the where they they had to learn Spanish, even though uh, Butch had said that he knew Spanish. And then uh, Sundance is taking it seriously and trying to learn it. And 
but just makes a cheat sheet. Yeah. And then just, you know, does gives up even reading that. It's kind of fun how Butch, you know, had been this very confident planner and very intelligent, very cunning, and just gets completely thrown off his game. The other thing I noticed was when they, uh, well, when they were uh, robbing one of the banks in the the bank, like the, it was one of the, it was like a social con where um, Sundance and the school teacher, you know, make this big scene. I don't, I think it's behind a montage, so there's not even any dialogue really. Um, they were, he takes them, you know, back behind the counter, downstairs in the basement vault, all the way down uh, before they, he pulls a gun on the guy. And I, the whole time I'm just thinking, this is this is just poor security procedure. He should be locking all those gates behind him too. Oh, I know that that sequence is just amazing because it's it's another moment where this film just doesn't need any dialogue to convey what it's saying. You know, the the director is so good at just letting you see what's happening and letting you fill in it. What you know, fill in what's going on. And ultimately, I think it's kind of interesting that the film does start off with those shots of the silent film set over the opening credits. And there are so many moments in the film where it, it chooses to go without dialogue and tell the story almost as a silent film. I think for some reason I had assumed that this movie was older than it was. So when I, as soon as I realized it was from like 1969, um, like, I don't, I don't know that changed my perception of the movie, but I just, uh, you know, talking about how it uses these older techniques or you know dialogueless scenes and it's interesting watching it through the lens of today in that you know looking back on it at the time we we look at it now as being so dated in a 70s way and looking at it using these previous film styles it, it's interesting to think about what it must have what the reaction was at the time mm-hmm. i always think of it as with the, the film singing in the rain which i doubt you've seen um but it's a film that was it was it's a film that was made in the fifties, but it's about the twenties. And it's interesting watching it in hindsight where we forget that this was a period piece when it was made. Mm-hmm. It always takes a moment to catch up to you, you know, that for that realization to catch up to you. Yeah, then the the next scene, um and the next thing that I really thought about the movie was it seemed like maybe like they're trying to go straight and when the guy they're trying to work for tells them how, Oh, these, you know, robbers keep stealing all the payroll money. So you might not get paid. Uh, and I almost wonder if like, this is the first time they realize, Oh, I'm not just robbing money from a bank. It's coming from other people too. Yeah. You can see the embarrassment that they're feeling of, Oh yeah. We're those robbers. And I, I, I wondered if they were going to do a thing where they were going to learn a lesson, but the the boss was such a jerk, and then he died, so nope. Yeah, I mean, do you think that these guys ever could have really gone straight, though? I don't know. I mean, if the if it had just gone well the first few times, maybe. Maybe they could have laid low for a while, at least. Yeah, I think they probably could have decelerated everything and, and kind of taking it down a notch but with the at least with the way this film was set up i don't think there could have ever been a happy ending for them really yeah which is interesting because there's all kinds of conspiracy theories out there about the real butch and sundance actually surviving 
But yeah, I, I like the scene where they are faced with the um, the other gang, and I think Butch says he's just he's never shot he's never actually shot anyone before. Yeah, it's a good thing those bandits didn't speak English, apparently. <laughs> and you know, that moment is just so tense too, where it's the lead up to them shooting, and you can see Sundance and they're going, "Why is this asshole backing me up?" But I just love the way that they have those moments, you know, dispersed throughout the film, where they start the characters start to realize just how heavy what they're doing is. Mm-hmm. So I mean, they're they're the you know the main characters of the movie, but they're kind of they're kind of the villains. They're you know of the the world they're in. And one of the things I noticed, I mean, I'm kind of thinking now, I didn't maybe I didn't pay enough attention to the the montage at the beginning or the you know the, the um, silent film stuff at the beginning, but it seemed every time, like I was saying before, uh, they would pull off a few heists and immediately uh, things would go down, or they didn't they didn't seem to have been working for so long uh, before things would come crashing down along the, around them. Like I didn't I didn't get the sense that they were in Bolivia for eight years. Yeah, I mean the film definitely compresses it. Um, I, I agree with you on that. I didn't. I don't think you get a sense of the time frame that it was historically. And I've even seen people describe the film as chronicling the last months of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid rather than the last years. Mm. So I don't think that was entirely unintentional. But overall, the film. I mean, it's. It's a film that doesn't try to be exact towards history. One of the things I read from William Goldman was that he said that the reason he made a screenplay instead of a novel was because he didn't want it to be that historically accurate. You know, he wanted to be able to take some some uh, liberties with the source material. So I think some knowledge of the history kind of adds some interesting details to it. But I, I can definitely agree with you watching the film without any of that it definitely does not feel like they spent eight years in Bolivia, that they were spending years and years and years, um, you know, over a decade robbing, robbing stuff in America. You know, it it feels like this all happens over the course of a few months. Mm -hmm. And then like right to the very end, um, like they've been, they've been so dry and, um, you know, which is witty to each other all the time. You still can't even tell. Do they do they really think they have a chance to get out of there out of there? I mean, they you know they don't they don't see the army rolling in, but yeah, I mean we, that is a it is a case of dramatic irony in that we know exactly how many soldiers are out there. They just know about the five or six that they saw shooting, but I don't think there's any chance that they. I, I don't think they thought they had any real chance. I wonder what happened to that school teacher. Hopefully found somebody a little less rapey. <laughs> what two consenting adults do behind closed doors. Yeah, I don't know. No kink shaming, I know. <laughs> but yeah, uh, overall, I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad to hear it. And I know for a fact that you're going to enjoy the next film because you're legally required to. Uh oh, what is it? Groundhog Day. Uh oh no no shenanigans. This is not a random one. You picked this on purpose. You're goddamn right I did. 
<laughs> okay, so Groundhog Day. Uh, yeah, I've never seen it. Uh, I think I've heard enough about it. To, you know, I know that the day repeats over and over again. I know that the character learns a lesson or something through the movie, but that's a, that's about it. The character learns a lesson through the movie is like 90% of films. <laughs> so it's a, it's a pretty safe assumption on my part. As long as you're not watching a David Lynch movie. Yes. But no, it's, it is, uh, it is one of my favorite films of all time. And so I am very much looking forward to subjecting you to it. I don't know. After hearing the stories of you uh, just putting it on repeat for your wife uh, every every Groundhog Day, I don't know. She now says that it's growing on her. It only took me ten years of playing it over and over again every year <laughs> for it to be growing on her. This is a movie like like The Big Lebowski, where you watch it once and it's a it's, it's, it's a it's a good movie. You watch it a couple more times and it's, it's okay. Uh, and, you know, it gets boring after a few more times. And then after you've watched it ten times, it's the best movie you've ever seen. I think that's exactly what Groundhog Day is like. Groundhog Day is is a very special film for me. And, of course, it stars the absolutely wonderful and perfect Bill Murray. <laughs> An actor who you definitely know who he is. That is probably true. Hate okay. you so much. <laughs> Anything else about uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Nothing else other than the fact that I am so thrilled that you were uh, as into it as you obviously were. It's it's one of my all-time favorite films, one of my all-time favorite scripts. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you liked that I liked it. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> All right, well, everyone, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for Groundhog Day. <laughs>